Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. My name is Daniel Rosenthal. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the Dorfman Theatre for this evening's platform. And I'm delighted to be joined by four members of the current National Theatre Company. Nadia Williams, Owen Findlay, Gloria Robiano and Tim McMullen. Before we start, I just want to say a little bit about how Dramatic Exchanges, the lives and letters of the National Theatre uh, came about. I spent nine years writing a book called The National Theatre Story, which came out for the National's 50th anniversary in 2013. And for me, some of the most compelling, the most illuminating passages in that book were correspondence, letters between Peter Hall, Laurence Olivier, Richard Eyre and David Hare. And when that book came out, I thought maybe there's another book in this. And it turned out that there was. <laughs> so the idea was to gather as much of the archive correspondence as possible between actors, directors, playwrights, producers, agents, theatre goers, you name it, and to form what I hope serves as a kind of choric collective diary of the Nationals' performance history, 1963 to 76 at the Old Vic, and in this building since 1976. And with the help of our director, Cara Nolan, I've compiled a small selection from that diary, which we're going to uh, present to you this evening. And it seems appropriate to begin at the beginning. While this building was under construction as the National's permanent home, the National Theatre Company, led by Laurence Olivier, was based at the Old Vic. Its first production in October 1963 was Olivier's revival of Hamlet with Peter O'Toole as the prince. Eileen Atkins, who was then 28 and had recently played Olivier's daughter in the comedy Semedy Detached in the West End, auditioned to play Ophelia. Eileen Atkins to Laurence Olivier, 14th of June 1963. Dear Sir Laurence, I've no doubt that Ophelia is cast, signed and sealed by now, but I have to write, as I've been reading and reading the play since my audition on Monday, and I see how wrong I was about the part. I was so frightened of it, I had no confidence to do the simple thing. If you are seeing any girls a second time round, will you please see me a second time round? Oh dear, I know you must be the busiest man in England, and how dare I ask to waste even more of your time. Love, Eileen. Laurence Olivier to Aileen Atkins, 15th, 5th of July, 1963. Darling Aileen, it was angelic of you to take such trouble in <laughs> studying and reading Ophelia for me, and you were as good as you could possibly be. Please try to understand that when a person is so familiar with something as I am with Ophelia's scenes, there is hardly anything to choose between the people he hears, particularly <laughs> if they are obviously clever and accomplished actresses. There is a whole library of choices of business, readings, expression, attitudes already in existence, and it is really only a question of pressing the right buttons to get a formula. I am really quite sincerely sorry not choosing you, but reading the thing is not really the answer. One should cast it instinctively, just as it should be played instinctively. I am awfully sorry to have imposed upon your kindness, and so very grateful for your splendid willingness, or love as ever, Larry. <laughs> Dear Sir Lawrence, <laughs> I was so touched by your letter, I know exactly what you mean. I felt an awful cheat wasting your time, but I wouldn't have missed reading Ophelia to your Gertrude for anything. <laughs> Much love, Eileen. 
with Rosemary Harris as Ophelia, Hamlet sold out before it opened, but it garnered lukewarm to poor reviews, including a Daily Mail notice that alluded to the long campaign to establish a national theatre. After a wait of 100 years, this will do for a start. <laughs> In 1966, the National staged a bond honoured by John Osborne. It opened on the 6th of June to largely hostile reviews. In The Times, the critic Irving Wardle argued that Osborne had gone to work more in a spirit of self-indulgence than of reinterpretation. John Osborne, telegram to Irving Wardle. The gentleman's agreement to ignore puny critics as bourgeois conventions that keep you pinned in your soft seats is a thing that I fall in with no longer. After 10 years, it is now war. Not a campaign of considerate complaints in private letters, but open and frontal war that will be as public as I and other men of earned reputation have the considerable power to make it. Irving Wardle to John Osborne. Dear Mr Osborne, thanks for the bumper telegram. <laughs> I don't suppose there's much point in replying to it as I now seem to have swung into the position as the enemy and anything I say will be read as further evidence of my treacherous, parasitic and cowardly nature. But here goes. <laughs> it beats me why you, with your contempt for my profession, whose support you no longer need, should be upset by a piece in the Times. The only reason I can think of is that you don't judge reviewers according to whether or not they talk sense. How could we? We don't understand. But according to their loyalty to you personally. I've been loyal until this week. So no doubt you've been prepared to tolerate my other shortcomings, waiting for me to confirm your mistrust of critics by turning with a knife in my hand. But from the reviewing end, it can't work for that. Not for me, anyway. I think you're the best dramatist we've got. But I feel no loyalty whatever to you personally. I don't know you. All I know are the plays. Now I find one that sticks in my craw. And what the hell am I supposed to do? Ignore the immediate response and write some piece of soft, soapy equivocation because I admired your work last time. I don't call that living dangerously. Maybe you're right. Perhaps there are marvels of technique and language in the play that I was too dim to recognise. If your work creates appetites, then presumably it will do so in spite of people like me. All I can do is try to make sense of it with the limited equipment I've got. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by open war, but I'm told you used to be a boxer. If you fancy a gentlemanly British punch-up, I'm more than ready to oblige. <laughs> Yours, Irving Wardle. Thank you for your nice note. Stop. I still think you are uncharitable, not personally, that is unimportant, but about work seriously undertaken, and I don't think the times should be as frivolous as all the others. Stop. After ten years' grind, it did seem rather a boot in the face from an unexpected quarter. Stop. However, it's all a bit larky. Stop. I'm bigger than you, but I'm sure you're stronger, so let's forget it. John Osborne. <laughs> In 1967, when Olivier directed Chekhov's Three Sisters, André was played by Anthony Hopkins, who was then 29. Sonny Amy, National Theatre Repertory Manager to Anthony Hopkins, 1st of November, 1967. Dear Tony, I understand that you've been experimenting with growing a beard for your film The Lion in Winter. I'm so sorry, but I did say that it wouldn't be possible for you to do that at this stage. Obviously, it's wrong for the part of André to appear looking scruffy at the beginning of the play, which I believe he did look last night. Your release was certainly not conditional upon your being allowed to grow a beard. I think we could allow you to 
start growing one after the 16th of November, providing you're prepared to tidy it up for the three sisters. But I shall certainly have to ask Sir Lawrence's permission. Sincerely, Sonny Amy. Between 1963 and 1966, Maggie Smith played nine leading roles for the National. When she took an extended break from the company, Olivier programmed Congreve's The Way of the World and gave its leading role, Milamont, to Geraldine McEwen. Maggie Smith to Laurence Olivier, 2nd of November, 1968. Dear Larry, what on earth do you expect me to say? I'm absolutely heartbroken with your decision, but what can I do? You must know that I have now no chance at all to play the part that you have always told me I should. I wish I could accept your reasoning, but I cannot even do that. There must be some play you could do. Well, what's the point of trying to tell my feelings? They obviously count for very little. It was nice of you to say that you will devote your energies to my return, but really, I do not think it would be wise of me to believe that either. Margaret. But Smith did return to the National as Hedda Gabler in 1970, and she did get to play Milamont in Ontario in 1976 and in Chichester in London in 1984. Olivier was succeeded as director by Peter Hall in November 1973, and Hall soon resumed his long association with Harold Pinter. Their first National Theatre collaboration was No Man's Land at the Old Vic in 1975. It starred Ralph Richardson as a wealthy writer, Hurst, who is visited by Spooner, played by John Gielgud. John Gielgud to Irene Worth, 29th of April, 1975. <laughs> Dear Irene, the printer play went wonderfully on the opening night and everybody seems very pleased with both Ralph and me. I dried up stone dead in my long speech at the end of the last preview, tried to replace a line I'd left out and fumbled the whole thing badly. So I was in terror of doing it the next night, but God, or proper concentration, was with me, fortunately. Very good press all round, all a bit baffled by the obscure passages and whatever moral one takes away or leaves behind. But it is funny, menacing, pow poetic and powerful, though possibly the blending of the components is a bit startling and confusing to the audience. But this is so true to some extent with all the Pinter plays. Love, John. When this building finally opened, the first new Shakespeare production in the Olivier Theatre in 1977 saw Gielgud take the title role in Julius Caesar, directed by John Schlesinger. John Gielgud to Irene Worth, 17th of February 1977. Dear Irene, we have started rehearsing Caesar, which will, I think, be very interesting. <laughs> I like Schlesinger immensely, and Brian Cox as Brutus and Ronnie Pickup as Cassius seem both to be promising. Hardly any crowd nondescript period clothes, semi-uniforms, no togas, and I find my small part full of tiny indications which may, I hope, justify my trying to play it. Love, John. Early in 1979, Peter Hall sent the script of Peter Schaffer's Amadeus to Paul Schofield and offered him the leading role, Antonio Salieri, the mediocre court composer who becomes obsessively jealous of Mozart's genius in Vienna in the 1780s. Paul Schofield to Peter Hall, January 1979. My dear Peter, all I can say is that if I get the chance, I've just got to play that part. I find Amadeus quite breathtaking and very alarming, and it seems to deal with unspoken areas of feeling, the relationship of truth to love and hate, the topsy-turviness of success, failure, and so much more. Yes, I would like to do it. So I'll expect further developments. Thank you for sending it to me. Love, Paul. In Hall's production of Amadeus in the Olivier that November, Schofield was joined by Simon Callow as Mozart and Felicity Kendall as Mozart's wife, Constanza. Amadeus played to standing ovations and sold-out houses and transferred to Broadway in December 1980. 
but Schofield refused to travel with it, and that allowed Ian McKellen to play Salieri in New York. With Tim Curry as Mozart and Jane Seymour as Constanza, Amadeus was again a smash hit, and McKellen won the Tony Award for Best Actor. Ian McKellen to Paul Schofield, 30th of July, 1981. Dear Paul Schofield, I gather that your refusal to return to New York means that you haven't spent a year of regrets every time news filters through about Amadeus on Broadway. However, I wanted to share a bit of my pleasure, which has been considerable since without you, I couldn't be playing Salieri. Every reporter I meet wants to know how you are and how you were in the part. My sister, who is your greatest admirer, came over to see the play. Her first remark in the dressing room was, isn't Tim Curry wonderful? <laughs> About a quarter of an hour later, she gave me my only compliment. You know, Ian, you managed to sound like Paul Schofield nearly three times. <laughs> a whole year away is unsettling, but I've enjoyed the chance to be a little objective about home and about myself, to have some attitudes confirmed and others challenged. I saw Alec McCowan the other week here and he was going on and on about his love of New York. So I asked him for one thing in which London was superior. Unhesitatingly, he replied, standards. And that's it. Everyone aspires here to wealth and the status of success, fed by the American dream that anyone can be a star and any star can become president, which I suppose is a fair alternative to the English equivalent that anyone can become a princess if she happens to be the daughter of an earl. <laughs> Belated congratulations on your initial success without which I and the Salieri's in Norway, Germany, and everywhere else might never have had a chance. All best wishes ever, Ian McKellen. In 1985, Sheila Hancock became the first woman to direct a production in The Olivier, when she staged Sheridan's The Critic, in a double bill with Tom Stoppard's one-act comedy, The Real Inspector Hound, which Stoppard himself directed. The shows ran until the 12th of April, 1986. Sheila Hancock, Notes to Hound Critic Company, 8th of April, 1986. I'm sure you will be as relieved as I am to learn that these are positively the last notes I will be giving you, I think. Hang on to the basic truth of the situation in The Critic and the plot of the play in Hound. As soon as anybody starts to perform solely in order to get a laugh, it becomes tiresome with the added embarrassment that if the laugh doesn't come, you are left very eggy. Some of you will probably feel indignant that I should even say this, but I know myself as an actress, and certainly as watching as a director, that it is the easiest thing in the world to drift into something that feels real, but is in fact mechanical and hollow. Enjoy the language in both plays without it becoming artificial. Relish every word. Don't let habit make you be lazy with the text. Please stick rigidly to the text. Don't put in odd words and ums and ahs. You would be amazed how it ruptures the rhythm and offends the ear. And honestly, both Stoppard and Sheridan knew what they were doing and have written with meticulous skill. It has given me great joy to watch you perform this play and to see the real deep pleasure you have given to countless people, Sheila. A few months later, Peter Hall wrote to the Nationals chairman, who had steadfastly supported him for the last 13 years. Peter Hall to Max Rain, 4th of September 1986. 
Dear Max, please to accept this letter as my formal and firm decision not to continue as director when my contract expires in just over two years. After a decade and a half in the job, new blood must be brought in. In many ways, I'm sad to write this. With the establishing of the National Theatre on the South Bank, we have shared an extraordinary experience. When you asked me to take on the National for the move from the old Vic, I remember wondering how on earth we would continuously fill with plays and with people, not one theatre, but three. But it is my conviction that we've turned this magnificent building into one of the friendliest and most loved theatres in the country. We've suffered some storms, not only with damaging industrial disputes, but later with something worse, painful subsidy cuts, when we had, I think, proved our worth and needed to grow, not to shrink. But in a way, I do not regret those bad times. They were challenges which created a strong organisation. Ever Peter. Hall's successor was Richard Eyre, who took charge in September 1988. And the following February in the Olivier, he directed Hamlet with Judy Dench as Gertrude and Daniel Day-Lewis as Hamlet. Judy Dench, card to Richard Eyre, 29th of March, 1989. Darling Rich, I hope you got your birthday message on the answering service yesterday. Everyone sang. It was a wonderful sight, though I thought slightly under-rehearsed. Hamlet is going wonderfully well. People flock round after the show and they are genuinely knocked out. It's a great company and everyone works so hard. It's really been wonderful to work on it and the only regret about doing it now is that we don't see you and I miss the laughs. But it's a huge success and that's thanks to you. Great love, Jude. On the 30th of May, Eyre told the Hamlet company that Day-Lewis would be leaving the show a few weeks before the end of his contract in November. Then this happened. Ernest Hall, stage manager, Hamlet show report, 5th September 1989. On the ghost's exit in Act 1, Scene 5, Mr Day-Lewis left the stage and told me that he could not continue the performance. An announcement was made and the audience invited to take an extra interval. The announcement only specified technical problems. After 32 minutes, the performance resumed with Mr. Northam as Hamlet. Mr. Bedford played Osric and Mr. Nicholas at Switzer. Mr. Northam coped brilliantly, not an exaggeration, and received an outstanding reception from the audience. Since that night, Day-Lewis has never acted on stage. In November 1991, Alan Bennett's first original play for the National, The Madness of George III, opened in the Littleton, directed by Nicholas Heitner, with Nigel Hawthorne as King George. Alan Bennett to Richard Eyre, 19th of June, 1992. Dear Richard, I saw in the paper George III was playing to 99% capacity. Typically, I started worrying about the other 1%. <laughs> Love, Alan. For Nicholas Heitner's Littleton revival of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musical Carousel, set on the New England coast in the late 19th century, the prosperous fisherman Enoch Snow was to be played by Clive Rowe, who is black. On the 5th of June 1992, four months before rehearsals began, Theodore S. Chapin, executive director of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, sent Heitner a fax, prompted by the objections of Dorothy Rogers, the composer's widow, insisting that Clive Rowe would be inappropriate casting, partly because the name Snow would appear a joke to the audience. Nicholas Heitner to Theodore Chapin, 5th June 1992. Dear Ted, 
I've received your fax and discussed it with Jenny McIntosh, the National's Executive Director. We have a problem. Clive Rowe is, in the opinion of everyone involved in casting Carousel, the best, if not the only candidate for Mr Snow. We have seen everybody who can sing the part, and we cannot imagine an alternative. He is a brilliant artist, a comic actor of great sensitivity, not capable of buffoonery, he's much better than that. He sings well, and he answers to the description of the character in the text. I believe this play is above buffoonery and above stereotypes. I cannot accept that on the one hand we mustn't cast a black man as a buffoon for fear of misinterpretation, but on the other we mustn't cast him as an insider. Some inconsistency here. The company will be interracial on all levels. We could not cast a show otherwise. I do not think the character's name will become a joke. If it does, it's the problem of those bigots who laugh and shouldn't worry us. The NT company as a whole is multiracial, and the production will be seen in that context. We cannot, in conscience, and arguably in British law, decline to cast an actor on the sole grounds of his colour. There is no question in any of our minds that Clive Rowe is the best man for the part, and I will say again that we've seen everybody. I have never held more exhaustive auditions, even for Miss Saigon. <laughs> we should talk soonest. I'll be arriving in New York on Monday night. With very best wishes, Nick. Heitner met the Rogers family in New York, and on the 18th of June, Chapin sent another fax approving Clive Rowe. In 1995, Patrick Marber made his playwriting debut in this theatre, with Dealer's Choice, which he also directed. It unfolds through a Sunday night and the early hours of Monday morning in a London restaurant before, during and after the weekly staff poker game. The players include the restaurateur, Stephen, and the chef, Sweeney, played by Ray Winston. The cast worked on the play at the NT studio in November and December 1994. Patrick Marber to Ray Winston, 11th of November 1994. Dear Ray, on the 28th your call is 11 o'clock. There'll be a script for you in... There'll be a script for you then, which you can read over lunch. We'll do a read for at two o'clock. Please note, this will be a very casual affair. There's nothing covert about the late arrival of this next draft. I've been hassling the writer for some months to get it done, but he seems intransigent. <laughs> at five o'clock, we'll have a friendly game of cards, dealer's choice. I suggest you learn to play poker pretty quick or we'll skin you by Christmas. <laughs> if you want me to teach you, call me. The purpose of our time at the studio is to work on the text and characters. It is not Technically speaking, a rehearsal period, I will not be blocking anything. Please feel free that at all times you can contribute to the process. You are a co-creator of the play. That said, don't expect a royalty. <laughs> In short, all ideas are welcomed, however shit they may be. I'm delighted that you're doing this play and I'm really looking forward to working with you. Best wishes, Patrick Marber. The next new play, Into the Cottesloe, was David Hare's Skylight, directed by Richard Eyre. It's set in the London flat of Kira Hollis, played by Leah Williams, a teacher at a comprehensive. She is visited by Tom Sargent, played by Michael Gambon, a millionaire businessman and also her former lover. Kira and Tom reminisce and argue, they go to bed together. Then early the next morning, Tom leaves. Director and playwright wanted to take Skylight into the West End, but Gambon, who by August 1995 was alternating between Tom and the title role of Volpone in The Olivier, was reluctant to transfer. Richard Eyre to David Hare, 1st of August 1995. I spoke with Mike. The outcome was inconclusive, but not without hope. I told him that I'd never worked with an actor as good as him. 
or seen a performance as brilliant, and that that was the view of most people that saw the play. He had done three great performances, I said, in Skylight, Galileo, and A View from the Bridge. He had an obligation to the public and himself to let people see him. He once said to me that he couldn't forgive people who wasted their talent. I quoted this back at him. Give us a short season in the West End, I said, or you'll regret it all your life, and you'll break David's heart. I left it that he would think again. He's got a rest coming up. His performance last night was the best ever. A man possessed, determined, it seems, to prove for himself what I'd said to him was true, that he's a great actor. I don't know what to think, but I'm much more optimistic than I was. I've given it my best shot. Love to you all, Richard. Gambon agreed. Skylight began a 10-week run at Wyndham's in February 1996, and he and Williams also took it to Broadway. In 1996, Abby Morgan was 27 and had yet to have a play professionally produced. On attachment at the NT studio, she had regular tutorials with the playwright Stephen Wakelam, and they worked on her play, Fast Food. Abby Morgan to Jack Bradley, NT literary manager, 30th of October 1996. Dear Jack, I do have this vision every time we speak on the phone that you are somehow crouched under your desk talking to me while a board meeting carries on around you. It's not just your hushed tones, more a feeling that you are a streak of anarchy and wit floating amongst the powers that be of theatre. You must have this very odd image of me. One minute I am fending off bolshy NT security guards and engineers mending towel dispensers, the next threatening to swan off to France like a right prima donna. And I say I'm a writer. Stephen keeps telling me I've got to write about my deeply middle-class roots, i.e. all the pretensions and none of the cash, which the general juggling of life just explained thus represents. I think they'd, I think they'd walk out of the theatre in their hordes. Thank you for the interest in the play. I'd love to do a week's workshop. It is an ambitious play and maybe a bit of Emperor's New Clothing, i.e. take away the trickery and there is not a lot there, but a week as a springboard to answer some of these questions is a treat. I look forward to it. Cheers, Jack. Abby Morgan. Fast Food was produced in Manchester in 1999. Morgan would go on to win BAFTA and Emmy Awards as a screenwriter. In September 1997, Richard Eyre was succeeded as director by Trevor Nunn. Nunn began his tenure by staging Ibsen's An Enemy of the People in The Olivier, starring the director's old friend, Ian McKellen, as Dr Stockman, who reveals that the spa waters of his hometown are poisonous. Trevor Nunn, postcard to Ian McKellen, 19 September 1997. Dearest Ian, your vigour and invention and inspirational vitality are undimmed after years of film work. It is incredible to me that you still wrestle the tiger with all the unquenchable energy and dissatisfaction for easy answers that I've always found in you. It's wonderful the NT to have you back and much more wonderful for me to have you in this nerve wracking symbolic production. Have a great night, keep it simple and enjoy a triumph which is deeply deserved. Love always, Trevor. In the summer of 2000, Nunn invited Alan Akebourne to direct his plays House and Garden at the National. The plays are set on an August Saturday with simultaneous and simultaneously performed action at the home of Teddy Platt, an adulterous businessman hosting the village fate in his garden. Actors had to shuttle at speed between House in the Littleton and Garden in the Olivier. Trevor Nunn to Alan Eggborn, 7th of August 2000. Dear Alan, I greatly enjoyed both House and Garden. I think they look very handsome and the actors are superb. 
It is impertinent for a beginner like me to offer any helpful hints about egg sucking, but both plays seem to be more leisurely in pace than they might be and would benefit from a speed run. The shows deserve enormous success and their changes of mood are absolutely not to be erased by rushing through all the shifts in gear. But I think you could challenge everybody, cast and crew, to go up a whole gear and improve the shining hour yet further. Deep thanks and love, Trevor. Nicholas Heitner became director on the 1st of April 2003 and soon resumed his partnership with Alan Bennett, who sent him a first draft of The History Boys. Alan Bennett to Nicholas Heitner, 20th of October 2003. Dear Nick, here's the thing I've been working on. I can't get any further with it, so perhaps you could tell me what you think. The first part is more or less comprehensible, but I don't know if you can make sense of the second half. It's full of gaps and repetitions, plus lots of odd bits which aren't fully worked out. Don't worry if you think it's pretty hopeless and no pressure to read it straight away. I probably ought to be, it probably ought to be called In the Lost Childhood of Alistair Campbell. Love, <laughs> Alan. The History Boys is set in a Sheffield grammar school in the 1980s, as eight boys are prepared for their Oxbridge entrance exams by the eccentric, inspirational Hector, who teaches general studies. The play opened in the Littleton on the 18th of May 2004, with Richard Griffiths as Hector and a class that included Samuel Barnett, Dominic Cooper and James Corden. Alan Bennett, postcard to Nick Heitner, 18th of May 2004. Dear Nick, whenever anybody asks me about the play, as Michael Grandish did last night, I always say how surprised I was that you saw its potential last October and straight away took it on. This isn't modesty. Nobody else would have seen what to do with it or helped me shape it in a way that you have done and with no disagreement or heartache. I haven't had such a good time in years. Much love, Alan. The History Boys would triumph here on Broadway and on film. In October 2007, Warhorse opened in the Olivier, adapted from Michael Morpurgo's seemingly unstageable novel about Joey, a horse caught up in the horrors of the First World War. Horses and other animals were thrillingly brought to life by puppetry, and the production's impact on audiences was immense. Michael Morpurgo, postcard to Nicholas Heitner, 20th of November, 2007. Dear Nick, what to say? The transformation of Warhorse has been a supreme moment of our lives. I know what risks you all took, how hard everyone worked to create this phenomenal piece of theatre. Thank you, hugely. The intensity lingers long. Both the sweetness and the pain are unforgettable. You will have made theatre-goers out of many thousands of youngsters and reminded the rest of us of the power live theatre has to touch the core of us. Two lives enhanced down here in Devon. Tons of others elsewhere. Bravo. Love, Michael. In 2011, James Corden starred in The Littleton in One Man, Two Governors, Richard Bean's reworking of Goldoni's The Servant of Two Masters. Corden played the guileless Francis Henschel. When the play transferred to Broadway, Corden was nominated for Best Actor at the Tony Awards up against four Americans, James Earl Jones, Frank Langella, John Lithgow and Philip Seymour Hoffman. The awards ceremony was on the 10th of June. Richard Bean, email to Richard Corden, to James Corden, 10th of June 2012. I've got 50 quid on you, don't screw up. James, <laughs> James Corden, email to Richard Bean, I'm afraid you've wasted your money, I think. It's all Hoffman. People who don't have votes seem to want me to win, though. He won. Mark Haddon's best-selling novel, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, is narrated by Christopher Boone, 15, who lives in Swindon. 
Christopher has behavioural traits associated with autism. His investigation of the murder of his neighbour's pet uncovers disturbing adult truths. Mark had an email to Simon Stevens, 24th of September 2008. Dear Simon, how are you doing? Stupidly busy, I presume. Uh, nevertheless, and uh, annoyingly, um, I wondered whether you'd had a look at Curious? I sort of presume you've either reread it and think it wouldn't work, or you've thought about it and realised it wouldn't work and therefore haven't reread it. <laughs> and either possibility is fine with me. You have to maintain a zen-like detachment about these things, or you end up being the nursemaid of your own books. Uh, but I'm prodding because Toby, my agent, was asking. Uh, feel free not to reply. Mark. <laughs> Stevens, email to Haddon. Dog is even more brilliant on second reading and very adaptable. I'd love to have a crack at it. Simon. Stevens' adaptation of Curious opened in the Cottesloe in August 2012, directed by Marianne Elliott. It transferred to the West End for more than 1,600 performances, and on Broadway it won five Tonys and ran for two years. It only closed in London in June 2017 and is currently on a tour of schools throughout the UK. In 2012, the effect was Lucy Preble's first NT play. It's a four-hander in which Connie, a psychology student, and Tristan fall in love at a research clinic while they undergo a four-week trial of a new antidepressant. They are monitored by a psychiatrist, Dr Lorna James, and her mentor and ex-lover, Dr Toby Seeley. The effect would open in the Cottesloe in November 2012, directed by Rupert Gould. Lucy Preble emailed to Rupert Gould, 25th of August 2012, 11.42pm. I feel like I'm understanding what the play is about technically for the very first time. Emotionally, I've always known that it's striving for where love and depression touch in their opposition, that depression is an absence of what love is made from just as love is a relief from what depression is made from. But technically, I think there's something else going on. Despite having called it the effect, I'm only just seeing that it's so completely about cause and effect in the human. It's an attempt, however clumsily, to look at what is love or what is depression by dabbling in what causes them, and therefore, happily, located completely in the notions of past and future, the business of our memory, or at least the thing that happened, and then what happened as a result of it, making memory relevant in a much more existential way. That must sound ever so pretentious, airy-fairy and deluded, but something in it gives me comfort at the moment, though I'm sure it struggles to transcend the page with its ugly weight. This is what happens if I write at night, or clinging to higher notions of meaning to give me faith. <laughs> climb, climb higher to where you might be safe and beautiful. In 2013, Rufus Norris directed James Baldwin's The Amen Corner in The Olivier. In this drama about an African-American Pentecostal church in 1950s Harlem, Marianne Jean-Baptiste played its pastor, Sister Margaret Alexander. Rufus Norris emailed to Marianne Jean-Baptiste, 30th of November 2012. I'm thrilled that you're up for this. If you have the itch for some serious theatre now, Sister Margaret is the most fantastic part for you, and I will do my utmost to make it both an enjoyable and properly full-on time. Save travels and good luck with the raccoons. Rufus. Sorry for my delayed response. I've been thawing out and catching up with the family at home in Los Angeles before another stint filming in Toronto next week. My agents are working out the details with the Nationals, so things are moving forward. The raccoons were successful in destroying my honeydew melons, but the aubergines are intact. 
bastards. I wonder how they taste. Roasted raccoon with parsnip and celeriac mash, little truffle drizzle. Bit stringy. I once had to pick melons for a job, 18 hours a day, back-breaking work for a fascist farmer. I've never quite forgiven the melons. So I say be grateful for God's little aubergines. But I'm slightly awed by your culinary standards. Do you remember the antique canteen? Anyway, I'm delighted that things are moving forward. I don't agree with the casting department's hardline stance on your request for a round of applause every time you enter the rehearsal room. It's entirely appropriate. Rufus. <laughs> The applause on entry is a given and has never had to be part of a negotiation. I am simply astonished that they would suggest Gordon Ramsay over Yotam Ottolenghi for my dietary needs. It's a potential deal breaker. M. A few months after the Amen Corner opened, Norris was appointed as Nicholas Heitner's successor. Rufus Norris emailed Carol Ann Duffy, 6th of October 2014. Dear Carol Ann, We've never met. I'm taking over from Nick Heitner as director of the National Theatre next April, and I'd like to throw an idea at you. I'll be directing the first show in the Olivier as of the new regime, which starts rehearsing in March next year. I've long been planning a production of a new play, and it's become apparent it's not going to work out. So I'm now looking at an alternative idea, one which is growing on me by the minute. But it does require close collaboration with a great poet who has an understanding of theatre. For every reason, you are the first person I thought of. Every Man is arguably the first English play. A morality play tale of simplicity but absolute timelessness, which has hardly had an outing in the last century and which could, with the right combination of folk, be a stunning and totally appropriate beginning to what we intend to be a great period in the theatre's history. Is this something worth an exploratory conversation about? All the best, Rufus. Hi, Rufus. An eye-wateringly tight schedule. Before I consider scaring myself into even considering it, it'd be helpful if you could email me more thoughts, what kind of script you're looking for, how close to the original text or not, and any other helpful thoughts. Caroline. Hi, Caroline. Thank you for getting back so quickly and for not yet ruling yourself out. It's most likely a very fresh version rather than a completely new or significantly expanded entity. It wants to be written as if written yesterday, stuffed full of soul and humanity, and maybe a third shorter. God is too brimstone, good deeds underwritten, etc. I don't feel it needs a radical conceptual idea. It should be every man, spoken now, but timeless. The production in my head takes place now, but with all the same truths as then. It's full of life and heartbreaking. It should be English, especially, essentially Christian in its undertow. You only take your good deeds with you when you go, and simple in a very ungeneralized way. Every man has done most things we've all done. He's not killed anyone, but his ledger is not well balanced. God is probably a woman. The cast is as international as London. The music is live and strong, and the whole is highly choreographed naturalism, clear, ephemeral, transient as life. There is a moment where a hundred people sing, and a moment where a man and a woman are naked in the wind. It's about being human. It's about being emotionally literate. No lies, no big gimmicks. I've never written like this. It's very liberating. 
There might be a communal gathering at the beginning, a celebration where we meet all the characters, so the world is possibly quite small. The stage is big and probably quite bare. People, words, movement, music, vivid life. The closer you get to death, the more alive you feel. I do feel this is achievable within the time or I wouldn't be asking. I am, as you can tell, very excited about it and freewheeling somewhat. It has the potential somehow of being a simple celebration of what a national theatre might be, which is exactly what that play should be. All best, Rufus. Caroline Duffy's version of Everyman, directed by Norris, became his first production as director, opening in the Olivier in April 2015, with Chiwetel IV in the title role. Since then, Norris and his colleagues have continued to explore what a national theatre might be. But unfortunately, time has defeated us. And the letters, postcards and emails exploring national theatre productions from the last three years will have to wait for another day. In a couple of minutes, I'll be signing copies of this book, Dramatic Exchanges, in the NT Bookshop, which you can reach via the Riverfront uh, entrance. Thank you again for coming. A special thanks to our director, Cara Nolan, and to our actors, Nadia Williams, Owen Findlay, Gloria Robiano, and Tim McMullen. Thank you all very much. <laughs>